Sergey, welcome back to Real Vision. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure to have you here always. Uh, you've been on Real Vision a number of times. We've talked through Chainlink. We're here to talk today about Chainlink 2.0. But before we get into that, let's do a quick review uh, for people who may not have seen our earlier conversations. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what Chainlink is, about hybrid smart contracts, and about oracles. Give us a working definition of what those terms are, why they're significant, and why they feature prominently in the Chainlink platform. Sure. So, so hybrid smart contracts are the more advanced version of smart contracts that are able to interface and affect um, the real world in terms of outside systems, outside data, outside payments. And when I say outside, I mean outside of a blockchain. So if smart contracts started out as a way to make tokens, because that was kind of the fundamental feature they had in order to pay miners, and then folks figured out how to make voting schemes in the form of DAOs on top of those tokens, right? So the initial two features of blockchains were really tokenization, which was great for bringing in a lot of value into the industry, and then DAO voting, which was great for creating some kind of governance um, or collective decision-making structure um, often around those tokens. The next stage is all of that, as well as connectivity to external systems, right? And even though smart contracts are called smart, they are actually unable to speak with external data or affect things in the world outside of a blockchain. And so what a hybrid smart contract is, is the more advanced realization of a smart contract in that it can not only be about tokens or voting, but it can actually be about insurance policies uh, in the real world about weather or market events with derivatives or lending protocols in relation to market data or any number of other use cases that really have to be built in a hybrid smart contract form. And the hybrid smart contract um, format really has two equal parts to it. It has the smart contract code itself that lives on chain in various blockchains. And then there is the Oracle, right? And the Oracle is the basically decentralized consensus method and system that guarantees inputs into the contract code, right? So when you're doing smart contracts, when you're making them, you're basically trying to achieve hyper-reliable automation. You're basically trying to go from a world of probabilistic, um, just trust me promises to a world of cryptographically guaranteed outcomes that are going to happen under all circumstances. And all circumstances means whatever, you know, the economy decides or whatever governments decide or whatever your counterparty decides, those, those outcomes will still happen in a cryptographically guaranteed way. And so smart contract code guarantees that to the degree that the on-chain state is, is going to change in a certain predictable way. But then you also have to guarantee what controls that state right, what controls the change on chain. And that is what oracles and oracle networks um, and decentralized oracle networks do, is they provide a level of consensus and validation and essentially a, a form of trust minimized off-chain computation that guarantees that the on-chain code will actually be triggered correctly. Because if it's triggered incorrectly, then it largely loses its value, right? You, you don't want a highly reliable piece of code that's very easy to manipulate through an external system. You actually want end-to-end -end security that guarantees you highly deterministic, hyper-reliable outcomes in this smart contract format. And for that, 
in relation to external systems, in relation to weather events for insurance or market data for derivatives or you know, delivery-related events for global trade, you need connectivity with external systems, but you need that connectivity to be guaranteed in a highly reliable way, both in terms of it consistently being live, so giving you liveness, and in terms of accuracy, so making sure that the triggering event for the outcome on chain is properly validated. Sergey, for people uh, who may not have the technical background, let's walk through a couple of examples, a couple of case studies uh, mm -hmm. to explain precisely the points you just made with real-world examples. Sure. So, so there's really you know two or three categories. One category is DeFi. DeFi is decentralized financial products, which basically means the types of financial products you're used to, except they run on a blockchain. So how those are composed is that there's a piece of code on a blockchain that guarantees that that financial product will have to pay you interest at a certain rate, as long as the market data about the value of the thing that the lending product is about is accurate, right? So you have a guarantee that you will receive a certain um, rate of return, and the only other factor going into that is the actual market value of, of the thing that, that is in the lending protocol. And that's where you need an Oracle mechanism, which validates the data about the value of the thing in the decentralized financial product. That's, that's one example. An, another example, which is, which is now kind of taking form, is, uh, and, and one that I'm very interested in, is, is decentralized crop insurance. So, so this is the ability to monitor the, wor the world's weather events, through the many different data sources that prove what the weather is and pay out an insurance policy to anybody anywhere on the planet that has an internet connection, regardless of an insurance company, right? So you can basically codify um, a farmer's relationship to risk in the form of an on-chain insurance contract. And then you need a system that's gonna reliably prove that the weather events um, that the insurance contract is about actually happened or didn't happen. And that's where Oracle networks come in is they validate and prove that there was actually a drought or there was actually a storm or there was actually a heat wave. And then they allow that proof to trigger the, the outcomes defined in the contract, right? So you need the contract to be highly reliable and secure, which is what blockchains do. And then you need the proof and the triggers and all the systems that control that to be highly reliable in what they do. And, and that's the role that Oracle networks play. Sergey, let me, let me just jump in here because I think this is such an important point. I've always thought that the crop insurance metaphor uh, or use case is a really good one for understanding smart contracts and oracles. So you could imagine a system uh, where a farmer, uh, whether it's in uh, Zimbabwe or Indiana, has a particular insurance contract uh, with an insurance company uh, that basically reads if there is more than you know five inches of rain in a 12-hour period they get flood insurance compensation now under the current model you have an insurance company you have the person who takes out the policy uh, and then you have to kind of prove to the insurance company that, that this event did happen in the smart contract world this all takes place in a sort of in on chain uh, in a way that becomes irrevocable, immutable, so that neither party uh, can either decide not to pay a premium or decide not to pay out a claim once something is validated. Now, the key point of this and where oracles are so significant is that there is third-party data in the form of, for example, NOAA weather satellite data uh, 
national weather service logs, all of these things that are created by third parties. And so the question becomes, how do you tie together the smart contract and the information from the outside world? And so crop insurance in many ways, I think DeFi is often a little bit abstract for people, particularly if they're not in the space, but crop insurance is something that feels very concrete. Uh, it's something that people can get their head around. And I think it's such an interesting use case uh, for Chainlink, for other oracles, and for the smart contract space. Yeah, I, th I, th I, think, I think it's a very meaningful use case because it, it, it interestingly enough, has, has a few properties that usually aren't in blockchain world. So the first thing, one is it doesn't have anything to do with tokens, right? It doesn't have anything to do with the value of a token rising or falling or changing or anything like that. Secondly, it, it actually helps people manage um, business-related risk, which is why a lot of financial products were actually invented. Many futures contracts, many financial products weren't invented for speculative reasons. They were invented so that business owners could manage away risk and continue to operate their business even if there was a drought, even if there was too much rain or not enough rain or any number of other factors. And then the third thing that I think is, is fascinating is that there are already great, great teams and companies like Arbol and others that are already doing this, right? So we already have decentralized crop insurance being built, which I think is only going to become more, more and more relevant with the extreme weather events that are happening now due to various you know, climate change results and, and, and various other you know, exogenous factors, kind of. So I, I, I think that this proves that blockchains and smart contracts, when combined with external data in the form of a hybrid smart contract, can do much more than tokenization. They can do much more than, than act as a speculative instrument for somebody, um, which is fine and you know, has brought a lot of you know, value into our industry. But I think it's time for our industry to go beyond that. And then the second thing that I think is quite impactful is that anybody with an internet connection, as you mentioned, in Zimbabwe or Indiana or anywhere, can actually interface with this agreement without relying on an insurance company. And so the fascinating thing is that historically, the way that you would decide who you want to do an agreement with would be based on a brand. And there right. would be a very nice logo. And the logo would say, hey, I've been around for over 100 years. You should trust me in regards to um, you know, this type of contract. And that's fine. And that works, very, that works very well. And it's worked very well for hundreds of years. But we're now actually moving to a world where there's a piece of code in a irrevocable, immutable, ungameable system that doesn't need a brand attached to it because the code guarantees certain outcomes to you, regardless of, of even how you access the code, right? And so you could access the code through any number of different interfaces or applications um, from your phone or from your computer, and you'd fundamentally be accessing the same risk management system, the same code as hundreds of thousands or millions of other people or farmers or, or users of that, of that risk management um, code. And so that's, um, that's the other, you know, I think truly fascinating thing is that any, yeah. anybody with an internet connection can now get crop insurance regardless of their local legal system and regardless of, you know, their trust or faith in an insurance company.
Yeah, that's really in many ways the revolutionary part about this. If you're listening to it and you think, okay, well, it's a, an incremental improvement on the way insurance works, I would say that no, that's actually not the case. Uh, insurance in some ways works pretty well right now. If you have your car stolen, uh, you go and when you you know when we watch television, we see these large insurance companies spend an incredible amount of money to build up their brand, exactly as you were saying, so that you know that this is a company that has. Uh, deep, reliable uh, financial resources. And if there's an event or a claim that needs to be paid out, that they'll be able to do it. But this idea that you can have things uh, that exist on chain in an unalterable way, uh, in a way that can't be gamed, in a way that brand, in a way that reputation is not the dependent factor for understanding whether or not you are going to get paid really is a massive philosophical shift uh, in the way that we think not just about insurance uh, or financial products, but about contracts and about business and about commerce much more generally. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a massive shift in how people relate both to each other and to institutions. So instead of, instead of relying on a kind of what I call paper guarantees or just trust us promises, you're now relying on physics-based, cryptography-based code that can't function in any other way than the way that you expect it to function. And, and, and all of this, I think, becomes more and more important and valuable, both as the unique benefits of it start be being made available and as existing systems that people think give them certain guarantees but then don't start to fail. Right, so one of the biggest influxes I've seen uh, about people's interest in hybrid smart contracts and into DeFi was actually after Robinhood, when people kind of had this um, collective realization that their relationship with Robinhood and their relationship with their own assets and their relationship with TradeFi and the trading environment that they were involved in was not what they thought. And so if, if that had happened 10 or 15 years ago, you know, everyone would just switch from one TradeFi provider to another TradeFi provider that had a slightly better logo or a slightly better track record with basically the same fundamental guarantees of just trust us. But now for the first time in history, people have an alternative in that they have cryptographically guaranteed control over their assets, cryptographically guaranteed outcomes in relation to what can and can't happen with their assets once they put them into a certain financial product or protocol or DeFi um, you know, app or whatever you want to call it. And, and that's a monumental difference, right? Because before the, the choice was go from one trust us brand to another trust us brand and just hope that everything's going to be better. And now the choice is, you know, I don't need to engage in this trust us. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Kind of, um, you know, storyline. I can just opt out and go into the, into a world of deterministic cryptographically guaranteed, mathematically um, kind of foundational outcomes. And, and that, I think, is the big difference that some people clearly understand and some people don't understand, largely because they believe they already have it, right? So if you engage in this simple exercise of, well, what level of control do you think you have over the money in your bank account? Or what level of control do you think you have over the money in your brokerage? Or what level of control do you think you have over your insurance policies? I pretty much can guarantee you that 90% plus of people will be off by something like an order of magnitude. Like they will be way off. They will think, oh, I can just withdraw my money immediately. 
or the bank can never not give me my money, or the insurance company has to pay me, or the trade fine environment has to execute my trades. So the, the, real, the, the really funny thing is that people think they already have this, and therefore when they're offered a better version of, of, of how the world works, they're kind of confused, right? Because they've, they've been convinced so well that they already have it. And it's only when those types of systems fail and fail in a very public kind of collective consciousness, you know, impacting manner that they go ahead and say, well, wow, you know, turns out I don't, it, it turns out the bank can just arbitrarily decide to only give me 66 euros per day at their discretion. Wow. That's, you know, that's an interesting thing I learned. And, and that's what people in places like Greece learned a few years ago, right? Where all of a sudden they could only get 66 euros per day because, because of, a, of a brief credit crisis that thankfully didn't turn into something more. But um, th that's, I think, really at, at the core of this. And as that veneer falls away, I think sooner or later, everybody's going to realize that blockchains and hybrid smart contracts and oracles and all of these systems give them the world that they want, that they thought they had. And in reality, that's that's better for society, right? So that's that's the fascinating thing is when people ask, like, are smart contracts and blockchains better for society? I mean, is transparency in how the global financial system and you having control over your own financial economic life instead of other large companies that can just do, decide to do whatever they want to you and millions of other people like you? Is, is that better for society? Yeah, if that's better for society, then smart contracts are 100% better for society in, in, in pretty much every single case. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting for those of us who covered the global financial crisis 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, one of the questions that constantly came up was this question of, as you say, transparency. Who owned collateral? What were the conditions on that collateral? Had it been rehypothecated? These are all questions uh, that were extremely difficult to figure out. And as you would say, a brand-based world, uh, as I might say, a paper world. Uh, but this is a very different paradigm. And the potential for smart contracts in general to solve these problems is incredibly great. Yeah, what I, what I would say, the way to think about this, even from the point of view to the 2008 financial crisis, which might be a topic that many people are more familiar with, is that this infrastructure forces transparency. You, you cannot make a financial product or a financial agreement on this infrastructure that does not force certain levels of inherent transparency. So for example, if this, exam, if this technology was at the state it is now, back in 2005, six, and seven, then what would have likely happened is that every mortgage application would have been its own individual smart contract. It would have had a multitude of different pieces of data uh, appended to it, um, such as the person's credit score, their financial history, any number of other, other items. And then all of those individual smart contracts would be packaged into a larger basket that anybody could research, right? So that means the average um, retail um, investor or purchaser of RMBS or CMBS or whatever um, could could go and look in detail at exactly what each individual mortgage holder had, how much money, not how much money, but like what their financial status was, what their credit score was. This was information that only a handful of people had. It was either CDO managers or other people within banks that were deeply ingrained in managing this type of risk, or it was the few people in the financial system 
that took the time and effort to really do painstaking, pretty much almost in-person diligence on all these risks. Now, if you had a system that forced every single mortgage application to be issued in this transparent way, and for it to then be ap appended with more and more information as time went on in a transparent way, and all of that information was accessible to the global um, you know, financial community, that I, I'm, I'm pretty much positive that that would not have allowed the boom to be as big, and that would have allowed us to avoid a bust that was that big. And, and that's fundamentally what systems like blockchains and hybrid smart contracts will do, is that they will create um, a transparency about financial products and contracts that allow these weird booms and busts to become much more softened, which is, which is much better for society because society usually picks up the bill for those. And it also allows people to manage their own risk better on an individual basis, which, which is particularly important for those people that don't have large groups of um, financial analysts or lawyers to help them manage risk, but they still need to manage risk, right? So you, you should be able to be in an emerging economy and be able to get crop insurance that's highly reliable with, with, without you having to take on um, the burden of evaluating a bunch of things or relying on a broken local legal system. And, and that in and of itself will, will change how certain emerging economies work. Yeah. One of the things that I most appreciate and like about your view uh, of this from a philosophical perspective is some of the um, improvements that it can bring elsewhere in the world, particularly in emerging markets in places uh, where they don't have a robust system of, for example, rule of law, property rights, uh, an advanced legal system, that this technology, not just Chainlink, but the entire sort of suite of protocols and technologies being developed, have the potential to make the world a better, fairer, and more equal place. Yeah, I, I completely ag ag agree with you in that. In fact, that is actually the, the goal that we have here um, in our work on Chainlink, is we want to eliminate all of these um, both information asymmetries and access to contract asymmetries and all these kind of global financial problems in a way that levels the playing field for, um, for everybody by, by making information uh, available, by enforcing the way contracts work correctly, by creating a notion of definitive truth that is very hard for people to break or game. And therefore, no matter whether you're a big party in the contract or whether you're a smaller party, you, you, you can still be treated fairly because there's a way to determine what actually happened in a, in a definitive truth type of model. And, and so I, I think that a lot of the things that are broken about how the global financial system works, global trade works, um, ad networks work, um, gaming works, there's a lot of things that are broken because there are fundamental trust issues and there's a lack of definitive truth to prove what happened. If, if we're able to generate definitive truth and if we're able to eliminate trust issues with the help of blockchains, we, we kind of enter a new world where everybody is on a much more level playing field, both between emerging and developed markets, but also in individual transactions between you know, large parties and small parties. So right. if you're a very large party with a lot of resources and you would traditionally be able to threaten to sue or threaten to just not pay the contract, you, you can't do that anymore because the contract is going to forcibly take the, the, the resources that you're supposed to pay and it's going to make them paid probably because it was holding them in trust as an impartial 
decentralized third party, basically. Right. And, and, and so this is also another huge change where if you're very, very big, right now you have a bunch of uh, levers at your disposal to manipulate markets, to manipulate your relationship with smaller counterparties. And with a system that works in a deterministic, cryptographically guaranteed way, those levers, they go away because, because now the contract decides what happens, not you and not, not a court somewhere but the code that both you and the counterparty committed to, which really is a much fairer um, way for, for the world to operate. It's also a huge paradigm shift, the idea that a trusted third party, an escrow agent, uh, that kind of thing, a third party custody bank effectively goes away and the trusted third party becomes the network itself. And if the network itself is the trusted third party, it creates a great deal more equal access uh, to it and a great deal more transparency for all parties involved. Um, I think all the people that offer those services today should really just begin to, to provide access to this infrastructure as a better version of their current systems. So that's what I think they should all be thinking about. Be beyond that, I think the really powerful thing is that just like an open source software, you have many, many iterations of something like Linux or, or any number of other pieces of software. Here you will have an open set of contracts that have been iterated on thousands of times and are available to everybody, right? So whereas traditionally you would need to go to a really high, high, high cost law firm to do a certain type of transaction and you would need to pay them a lot of money to structure the, the, the details of your transaction. And, and you would need to spend you know, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You'll now arrive at a place where you have a piece of code that guarantees a certain set of outcomes in that transaction, that piece of code is available to the poorest contracting party and to the richest contracting party. And regardless of their wealth or power, they both have to abide by the contract in an equal degree. And all of that is accessible to anybody with an internet connection. And so all the places where you don't have a good system of contracts, because the legal system, for example, is corrupt or just fundamentally doesn't work, you, you suddenly have them leapfrog into an entirely new way of collaborating both locally and internationally, such that if somebody wanted to make foreign direct investment into that geography, they no longer need to rely on the local legal system. They can now codify everything in a smart contract and rely on that as the system that enforces their property rights and, and their ownership of different assets or, or their ability to you know, interface with certain landholders or, or, or whatever. So. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a monumental shift, and it, it's going to be very similar to the shift of the internet, right? Where the internet definitely changed the way the world works for, for, for people in more developed economies. But in emerging markets, it literally took people from not having a local library to having the same access to information that I have, right? So if you have an internet connection and a $50 Android phone, you have Wikipedia, you have YouTube, you have all of these amazing resources where you can watch amazing, you know, Stanford videos, you can watch, you, you can read books, you can see the authors explain the books. Um, and just think about what kind of change that is from an environment where people didn't even have paper books, or didn't even have the ability to communicate, to now being able to learn at the same level of quality as me and other people in, in, in more advanced places that are like down the road from Stanford. And, and this is this is the same thing that this is going to do, but for their economic life. 
So their economic life is not in very good shape because their local economy can't maintain a stable local currency or their local economy can't give them an insurance company or their local economy can't give them a savings account. And now the internet can give that to them. The internet can just go ahead and give them um, a stable currency of some kind, an insurance contract of some kind, a bank account of some kind. And this is going to change their life as much or more as their ability to access information. Because now they'll, they'll have a way to manage risk. They'll have a way to sell their goods internationally without middlemen taking uh, the vast majority of the profits. They'll have ways of attracting foreign direct investment without people having to rely on a broken local legal system. I mean, it'll, it'll just change the way that people um, interact with each other in, in this globalized world with, without having to rely on broken legal systems. I, I, think, I think that's really the big difference is I don't need a legal system to guarantee me certain contractual outcomes if I have a piece of cryptographically guaranteed code that effectively does that even better. And, and, and that's the reality that, that we're arriving at. Yeah. You know, one of the cliches that's used to describe the blockchain world, the distributed ledger technology world, the smart contract world, uh, and it is a cliche, but I think it's a useful one or a helpful one, is to think about this space uh, as the internet for trust and for value. If you think about the democratization of information that the internet provided, uh, this world that we're discussing now really is, in a sense, uh, internet 2.0 for trust and value. The idea that you can provably demonstrate certain properties using cryptographic mathematical properties, properties of physics, and the idea that you can use it to exchange value in a secure way without a trusted third party intermediary. For me, in many ways, that's really the core idea that we're discussing here. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I've heard people say the internet of contracts in the past, um, and it, everything you, you just said is, is, is exactly right. At, at the end of the day, the trust relationships that people have between them and financial institutions, insurance companies, global trading partners, sources of foreign direct investment, you know, whatever other, other resources, um, those work in this trust us paper-based brand uh, guaranteed manner. And that's obviously a huge improvement from, from what there was thousands of years ago where people couldn't even give a letter of credit and they had to bring all their gold with them, right? They had to bring a big chest of gold and they couldn't give a piece of paper to say, hey, I have a chest of gold. You know, obviously where we are now is a massive improvement from that. But um, this is an equally large improvement from, from where we are now, where, where all of a sudden you, 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 you just have certain guarantees. And, and once again, the, the problem, I think, is that people think they already have this. That's, that's, why that's why the vast majority of people don't see this as an important question. Um, it's because they believe they already have these guarantees because the brands and the systems of today have done such a good job in convincing them of that. And, and this is also why where a lot of the places where those brand-based guarantees fail is where you see a lot of adoption of crypto, right? So in, in South America, in, 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 in places where basically certain aspects of the local legal system or the ability to generate a reliable currency haven't panned out the way people had wanted, you see more and more adoption of this because people um, have a very sharp need for a reliable economic mechanism 
whether that's around insurance, whether that's around savings accounts, whether that's around the local currency, wh- whatever it is, you know, people spend a lot of their time generating economic value that they put into these systems. And the point at which this, those systems, you know, don't function the way they expect, I mean, one way to think about it is that the majority of people's lives um, suddenly becomes devalued or suddenly becomes unpredictable, right? Like all the time people spent working suddenly and, and getting some kind of assets and putting them somewhere suddenly is at risk. That's a very serious risk that I think um, everyone wants to manage. Um, and I think uh, these systems are going to be the way that that's managed over, over the coming um, years and decades. Yeah, it's also going to be interesting to see what new use cases we can come up with in addition to doing some of the things that uh, are already done in a brand-based world, uh, not as well, particularly in places in the world where they don't have uh, a stable currency or access uh, to a, you know, a, uh, um, a fair and well-developed legal system, property rights, all of those things, to see all the innumerable new use cases that are going to come out of it. That's just fascinating to me. And I'm curious about what some of your thoughts are for not just what smart contracts can do or hybrid smart contracts can do better than the existing system, but new use cases uh, that we haven't yet even considered. I think the, the, the nuance around new use cases is, is that you'll actually see a combination of different systems making more and more advanced um, hybrid smart contracts. So what I, what I think you're actually going to see is you're going to see the global insurance industry in this Internet of Contracts, and then you're going to see the global derivatives industry in, in, in the same Internet of Contracts. And then you're going to see um, equity ownership in, in that Internet of Contracts. And then you're going to see carbon credits as, as, an, as, as a type of agreement also in that one Internet of Contracts, even if it's across different chains, right? And, and then what you're going to start seeing is people very creatively combining these different aspects um, of trust and value and internet of contracts agreements together with each other, right? So you're going to start seeing really interesting combinations of, I am going to hedge my risk using a derivative protocol um, such as synthetics. I'm going to get some kind of yield from something like Aave. Um, I'm going to apply that to some kind of carbon credit scheme so that my carbon credits maintain their value over time under you know, X or Y set of conditions. And I'm gonna be able to build all of that simply by getting a developer, possibly internally to my team and company to compose all the different agreements. Or um, there might be firms that do that for you the way that banks compose more advanced agreements now. The, the agreements that I think that'll be important um, will continue to be DeFi, so decentralized financial products, Crop insurance and various forms of insurance have very large trust and data proof issues that I think all of these systems um, are already beginning to solve. Then gaming is a large global industry that has um, a surprisingly large amount of trust issues where either the game is unfair or the ownership of items in the game suddenly is made unfair because their value is changed or reduced or you know who knows what happens. Um, I think those are the three largest industries. Beyond that, I see interesting things in ad networks and the trust issues there where nobody can really prove um, to each other to a sufficient degree that an ad was served or that it was viewed and that there's a lot lot of fraud there. Um, The general way to think about it is where are their trust issues and where is their fraud that makes it either prohibitively costly or impossible to do certain types of agreements. 
And, and once you were to eliminate those trust issues and the possibility of fraud, what would be possible as far as those agreements? And then if you layer on the dimension of, well, let's imagine we eliminate fraud and trust issues in the derivatives industry, in the carbon credits industry, in the equities industry, um, and in the global you know, weather insurance industry, what happens when people can compose more advanced contracts across all three or four of those categories with, once trust issues are sufficiently resolved? Um, that's when I think you start seeing truly mind-boggling things by these kind of superpower-driven smart contract engineers that, that, that can basically make agreements that centralized entities would take months to build and months to make because they would need to do all the due diligence on all of their counterparties and all of the contractual details and all the ways everything can go wrong. But if you have a, a bunch of systems that you, you know the universe of what can go wrong and that universe is, is sufficiently small and those building blocks can all be connected together, then you can, you can just rapidly build amazing um, configurations of, of, of agreement across all of these industries. Which is when I think you'll really see the advanced nature of this go, go to a whole new level. Yeah, and just to give some sense of the size of these markets, um, the derivatives, the notional value, meaning the total outstanding dollar value, it can be netted out, but the total value uh, of these uh, of the derivatives industry is estimated to be over one quadrillion dollars. That's like 10 to the 15th. It's a massive, massive number. So the scope, the scale, the size, the impact of what we're talking about here is potentially, potentially enormous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're in the very early innings here, right? If people are looking at 50 or 60 or 100 billion in the DeFi industry, and they're looking at that and saying, wow, those are big numbers. In my personal opinion, that's nothing. That's the very, that's not even the tip of the iceberg. That's like the mist going off the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> The, the amount of value that can be in these protocols, just by virtue of the amount of value in cryptocurrency forms, formats, is um, you know, three or 4%, right? So if there's anywhere from one to 1.5 trillion in cryptocurrency, which is, which is the format that can be put into DeFi products, and you have 50 to 60 to 100 billion, you're looking at single digit percentages of what can be in DeFi today. And then if you look at that one to $1.5 trillion number and you compare it to the global equities markets, the global capital, the global capital markets, the global derivatives industry, I mean, the, the percentages are, are, are basically minuscule. And so even, even if a very small percentage of the world's financial contracts migrates into this format, um, you're going to see another zero or two added to um, what's in DeFi right now. And and that'll that'll be a conservative um, outcome for, for 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 what would happen here, in my opinion. That that is if all of this has value, right? That's that's if all of these systems actually provide this transparency, private key based control, and you know superior yield that they're doing now, and they're able to do that at scale over time. So if if these systems actually do what they're supposed to do. And the existing world's uh, systems continue to fail people in ways that they find surprising, then you know that migration, in my opinion, is pretty much assured. Um, so, so that's that's how I view it. So, when you mention that, if Sergey, what are the risks here? What could conceivably go wrong, particularly from a technological infrastructure? perspective with the public key infrastructure, with the smart contracts themselves, uh, with the environment in which the smart contracts are run? 
Well, like any technology, there's a million different risks with, with any technology, right? With drones, with AI, with quantum computing, with any number of technologies, there's a number of factors, new research, new, new issues. Um, fundamentally, what all of this really depends on is encryption holding. So modern day encryption schemes that secure our email communications, that secure our messaging communications, our video communications, maintaining their integrity. Right, so you, you fundamentally need encryption to work for private key and pu public key based systems to function, which is what all of these blockchains um, are, right? They, they all use private key security schemes to sign transactions and broadcast them and so on. So there's all kinds of threats in relation to quantum computing um, in, into all kinds of other factors. Now, those threats don't seem to be evolving particularly quickly which suggests that the ability for all of the existing blockchain systems to, you know, to have a, a window to adapt um, is there. And, and that's fundamentally how I think most threats should be viewed is that you know, threats evolve at a certain pace and that creates a window um, in which you can adapt, right? In which you can adapt the system, you can continually improve it, you can, you can add a new um, encryption scheme that's resistant to quantum, quantum computing or, or any number of other things. And it's, it's really more so the speed at which various um, attack vectors or threats develop and the speed at which our industry is able to evolve and improve in order to avoid them. So th that's, that's really probably the bigger, the bigger factor, um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Talking of evolution and improvement, uh, we were going to discuss today Chainlink 2.0, but we got so caught uh, on, I think, this incredibly interesting and compelling big picture view uh, that you have of this world uh, as kind of a philosopher of this space, in addition to being a technologist. But I'm curious, tell us a little bit about where Chainlink is right now. What's happening with Chainlink 2.0? I know you recently published the white paper for Chainlink 2.0. Tell us what Chainlink is, why the upgrade was required, uh, and what it makes it so significant. Sure. So, so Chainlink is an open source platform for creating decentralized Oracle networks. Decentralized Oracle networks are basically unique and distinct computational environments that have a singular, usually have a singular purpose. A singular purpose is an, an example would be providing a single market price or providing or, or, or a different decentralized Oracle network would provide the weather data about a single geographic location. So each decentralized Oracle network that's generated um, within the Chainlink kind of framework and open source platform model provides its own distinct decentralized service. So the, the way to think about um, how applications are built and 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 how our industry really works at an architectural level is is you kind of you you kind of have three three categories of 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 activity. You have on-chain activity, which is the contract code itself. Then you have off-chain activity, and the off-chain activity is the world's data, market events, weather events, um, computing systems, backend systems, and banks, whatever, any, any anything that's happening outside of a blockchain. And then you also have what we call the decentralized meta layer, which sits between the on-chain activity and the off-chain activity. In this decentralized meta layer, you basically have, um, at this point, hundreds of individual decentralized Oracle networks providing hundreds of distinct services. 
And what Chainlink 2.0 is about is expanding that to thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of distinct decentralized Oracle networks that provide their own distinct decentralized service. Now, these decentralized services so far in the, in the Chainlink format have largely been focused on data, right? So early on, the Chainlink network and the decentralized Oracle networks running within Chainlink um, have been providing market data, have been providing some weather data, have been providing different individual pieces of data. And that has actually enabled DeFi to grow to where it is today, right? So if you look at the rate at which Chainlink Oracle networks provide data and the rate at which new DeFi markets are launched, you're going to see a very heavy correlation where the rate at which we're able to provide data is often the rate at which many new financial products are able, are able to be built in this new exciting format. What Chainlink 2.0 is about is expanding what the world of decentralized services can do. And that has two very important outcomes. One outcome is the expansion of what decentralized Oracle networks do generally. So one example is, while before Oracle networks were providing data, now they can actually provide computation. That's significant because whereas before your choice was either highly trust minimized, highly reliable computation in a blockchain or highly unreliable, highly centralized, untrustworthy computation in a central server, you now have a middle road where you can do trust minimized computation of the kinds that weren't possible on a blockchain and of the kinds that couldn't be made trustworthy by a central server. What's trust-minimized computation for people who aren't familiar with the, for, with the technology uh, and the terminology? Can you give us an example? Sure. So the way that blockchains achieve highly reliable trust-minimized computation is they have tens or hundreds or thousands of nodes doing the same computation and then storing the final result. And all of those nodes have some dimension of proof that they are distinct and separate individual either entities or persons that are not colluding with each other. So you basically have tens or hundreds or thousands of individual entities coming to the same conclusion, um, arriving at what's called consensus. What decentralized Oracle networks do is they arrive at consensus, but they arrive about it on, on topics other than what a blockchain does, right? So a blockchain will arrive at consensus about smart contract code and transactions between private keys and blocks full of transactions that is what a blockchain um, is, is, is made to arrive at consensus about. What decentralized Oracle networks arrive at consensus about is either the provision of external data and validating across many different independent nodes that that data is actually that way and basically proving that the world actually works that way. And now with Chainlink 2.0, you're seeing um, much, much more advanced decentralized Oracle networks that can not only get the data, but they can do some level of computation on that data that you didn't want to put in a blockchain for cost, privacy, or scalability reasons. Now, just to be very clear, we're completely fine with all computation eventually moving into a blockchain, but that will require blockchains to acquire certain privacy guarantees, scalability guarantees, and cost efficiency guarantees that they don't have now and may not have for years. And what we are doing in, in Chainlink 2.0's case is creating a, a decentralized meta layer, an abstraction layer between blockchains and everything else. So this means that if you want to define what a smart contract does in relation to a piece of data, 
in relation to a computation that you can't do on a blockchain, in relation to another chain, in relation to all three of those things in unison um, being coordinated and orchestrated to make a new type of hybrid smart contract. All of that coordination um, and, and actually the computation of that will have to happen somewhere. And it will be, and it is already starting to happen in more and more advanced use cases in Chainlink 2.0 decentralized Oracle networks. And then the collection of all these decentralized Oracle networks is what we call the decentralized meta layer, which, which is just a very, very large suite uh, and large collection of di different Oracle networks that can be clicked together to compose those more advanced contracts. So for example, um, when you look at how people build, built Uber, right? They had the core Uber code that they wrote as developers, and then they reached out to Twilio to send text messages to, to, to the user. They received the user's location from Google Maps, and then they paid the driver through Stripe. And it was only through the usage of these other services that the core code written by the Uber engineers themselves was able to achieve its final goal and value for users. Now that um, set of services is, is what Chainlink 2.0 and the decentralized meta layer is about. So if you wanted to build decentralized Uber or decentralized global trade applications or decentralized insurance, you would write your core code in one or maybe two different blockchains. You would then have to orchestrate the retrieving of data, the payment um, to users in different environments, the retrieval of other data to prove that you know, something actually happened. And all of that orchestration has to happen um, somewhere. And where it's, where it's already starting to happen is in these more advanced decentralized Oracle networks that provide this uh, decentralized meta layer. So, so basically everything that you want to do with a blockchain that the blockchain itself doesn't do is doable through this abstraction layer. And that includes the input of data, the output of commands from blockchains into enterprise systems, the communication with other chains, the interaction with, with various other computing systems, and the proving of all of that in a consensus-driven decentralized manner. And, and so the goal here is not to replace blockchains, it is to complement them to enable these more and more advanced hybrid smart contracts, such that if you want to build a more advanced, more useful smart contract, you have the blockchain as a kind of highly reliable database. You have smart contract code running on the blockchain's uh, nodes as the application logic, but then you have a very, very large kind of sea of services, decentralized services that can be connected into your decentralized, um, the, the decentralized services that can be connected into your hybrid smart contract to give it progressively more and more functionality while maintaining the key trust and reliability guarantees of that hybrid smart contract. Because if you were to just connect it uh, manually, A, it would be a huge amount of work and B, it would be very brittle and easy to break. And therefore the contract wouldn't actually be reliable and it wouldn't be delivering the guarantees that a hybrid smart contract or really any smart contract is supposed to deliver. Yeah. This is a very large and very powerful idea 
particularly for people who are coming to us from the finance side who don't have computer science backgrounds. Uh, this is called SOA, Service-Oriented Architecture. The idea here is that you have a series of services uh, that you can abstract from and that you can compose new services uh, with uh, in a way that is effectively encapsulated and can be plugged uh, and played into other types of applications. It's a very big picture idea, and I think the Uber metaphor is a very apt one. So this would be a sort of service-oriented architecture for the blockchain era. Give us a sense of where you are with this. How close is this uh, to being ready for prime time, ready for application development, ready for production? I mean, it's it's ready now, and it's and it's been ready for for some time. It's just evolving into more and more advanced um, decentralized services. So we already have hundreds of decentralized Oracle networks on many different chains. We already power DeFi on a multitude of chains across Ethereum, um, Binance Smart Chain, Polygon, a, a number of a number of different different chains. So these services are already available on different blockchain environments. And they have so far historically been very focused on providing data. We have already expanded into two types of computation, namely VRF, which is random number generation. Random number generation is very important for um, gaming of various kinds and for NFTs. When NFTs are generated, you need them to be generated fairly in order for them to have a certain um, claim to being valuable. Then there's also keepers. Keepers are DevOps bots that um, can trigger contract events off-chain. Um, they are really the beginning of more and more advanced off-chain computation. Um, and then there's more and more advanced off-chain computation like fair sequencing services to avoid um, MEV and, and, and other things. So we are kind of on a, on a, on a continuum here, right? We, we are already very well into the continuum where Chainlink powers the, the majority of DeFi today. So if you go down the list of the top you know, 10 or 20 DeFi projects, you'll see that the vast majority of them are powered by Chainlink data because that data is um, guaranteed in this consensus-driven, highly validated manner and has withstood various um, attack vectors that other systems haven't. But, but now you're seeing a need for more and more advanced services. One more advanced service is the ability to provide identity data, right? So that is a type of data, but it's not market data. It's identity data so that people can be permissioned into using certain financial applications. And identity data is actually one of the big hurdles that enterprises um, face when making smart contracts. So being able to provide identity data so that enterprises can guarantee that they're meeting all kinds of legal requirements when making their contracts accessible to certain parties um, can, can open that part up of, of the world up to them. And, and it's like that with really every subsequent service, right? So if you have random number generation, suddenly blockchain gaming becomes a lot more attractive. If, if you have identity data, suddenly institutions and enterprises can use DeFi. If you have um, weather data, suddenly you have weather and crop insurance. If you have global and shipping data, suddenly you have global trade um, agreements. And, and then as you provide data, you actually find that the more and more advanced contracts people want to build are usually a combination of different services just like the more and more advanced web applications are never a single piece of uh, code made by the developer and a single service, it's very often a piece of code with five or six or seven or 10 services that are all interoperating around that piece of code. And this is actually even how bank applications are built on the back end within large banks 
is they have their own services that are only accessible to their internal um, kind of bank developers. So, so what's really going on now, as, as you rightly put it, is that you're seeing a service-oriented architecture evolve on two important levels. Level number one is the contracts themselves. And this is what I meant when I said that there were these templates, right? So there's um, Aave as a lending protocol. That's a very good template for people to, you know, consume yield-related activities. Then there's Synthetics as a very good template for derivatives-related activities. And those can really be viewed in our services that other smart contracts can use. Then there is another level of the decentralized services outside of a blockchain. And that includes all of the world's data, all of the world's computations that blockchains don't do, but that do need to be trust minimized. And all of the world's kind of activities that a blockchain or a smart contract would need to engage in, but cannot engage in natively. And so while that might sound somehow simplistic, it, it's, it's actually a very, very large universe. So it's the entire universe of everything that smart contracts want to do, but are unable to do themselves on a blockchain, which is basically everything other than tokenization, DAO voting, and you know a few other, other types of things. Everything else that smart contracts are being written about today, they will need to interface with some kind of decentralized service. They will need randomness to prove that their lottery contract was properly settled. They will need um, weather data to resolve the insurance agreement. They will need location of goods to pay out the invoice. They, they will need all of these different um, either computations and or pieces of data. And, and my strong belief is that it will not only be one or the other, it will actually be the types of combinations that you see in more involved uh, and in advanced web apps is where you see data and computation from various other systems combined. And it's, it's that combining that needs to be done in an abstraction layer or what we call the decentralized meta layer. And it's Chainlink's 2.0's goal to arrive at this um, kind of plethora of uh, different services. And, and the fascinating thing is that it's, it's not just about us building services, it's about an entire community of people building different services building different data-related services, such as uh, there's D-Climate, that is a weather data aggregation DAO that generates its own um, weather data-related service about um, a specific topic in the form of a Chainlink network-powered um, Oracle network. And, and, and so what this is really about is generating all the capabilities that blockchains don't yet have, but need in order to achieve their full potential in the form of hybrid smart contracts. That, that's really what our fundamental goal is, is to take our industry from being about tokens and DAOs and a little bit of DeFi to growing that industry 10 or 100 or probably 1,000x into something that um, is predominantly about the internet of contracts, the internet of value, the internet of trust um, in these more advanced contracts, which once again will be equal, equal parts off-chain decentralized services and on-chain code using those services. And, and if you look at how DeFi is built and decentralized insurance in its, in its few cases now is built, that is how it's built. Yeah. DeFi is a hybrid smart contract. Decentralized insurance is a hybrid smart contract. And the more that that's going to continue, the more decentralized services um, run on these decentralized Oracle networks within Chainlink 2.0 is, is, is going to be more important.
You know, Sergey, in the last hour or so that we've been talking, we've covered an incredible amount of ground. We've gone in very deep uh, talking about some of the use cases, talking about the technology, talking about the philosophy and the overarching view of what the world could look like. What are some final takeaways that you'd like to leave the audience with? What are some of the most important things that you think people need to know? I, I think that our industry is at a very early stage and I think it has a, a much greater and very different impact than many people seem to think because there is um, a lot of activity around tokens and, and speculation and that type of stuff. And once again, while tokens have brought a lot of value into our industry, and that's good because it's, it's, it's created a base and foundation on which DeFi and other things can grow, I think that anybody who is really evaluating our industry from any point of view, but especially from the point of view of whether they want to work in this industry, I think they should ask themselves if they think the world works the right way today. Do, do we all really believe that the way that, um, you know, the global financial system, the global system around currencies, the global system around insurance, the, the way that global trade operates, do we really believe that that works in a, in a fair, impartial, and economically kind of encouraging way for everybody? Or do, do we believe that, that, that those set of systems are fundamentally captured by a select group of people that bend them to their personal interests at the expense of the vast majority of everyone else um, and society as a whole? I think that is the libertarian idea in question that um, has driven a lot of people in this into this industry over the 10 plus years that I've been here and over the seven or eight years that I've been building smart contracts. If you look at this industry and, and well, actually more importantly, if you look at how the world works and you say, you know, I think the world should be more transparent. I think the world should be more um, fair in how people have access to economic outcomes and opportunity. I think emerging markets should have the same level playing field for global trade and a system of contracts as the rest of the world. And I think that global financial crises are basically based on a few select group of people using their asymmetric advantage with gaining information to their benefit at the expense of society. You know, if those are the types of things that you think um, should get remedied, then this is probably a good industry for you to think about. It's a good industry for you to think about working in, it's a good industry for you to think about getting involved in. It's a good industry for you to go to a meetup about um, because this is the industry that will solve those problems. There is no other industry on this planet that is looking to solve those problems or has a chance of solving those problems. Um, this is the place where that's going to happen. So if, if you find those types of things in interesting, if, if, if you had you know fake concert tickets sold to you, if you didn't like that, or if the insurance company didn't pay you, or if you think the global financial crisis is, is, is surprisingly um, unaddressed, and the only way to address it is to build entirely new financial systems that force transparency out into the world, rather than, 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 than tweaking what, what, you know, what we've already all been doing, then this is, this is a very good place for you to think about joining. You should, you should join. You should become part of this. You should do something in this industry. You should join a company you should work with somebody. You should go to a meetup. You should see how your industry can be improved through this technology. It's a good thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to change your industry for the better. 
if you think that's better, if you if you think that your industry and the world can be changed in these ways, um, you know, once you give that some thought, if you feel that there's room for improvement there and you, and you feel that that's important, you should get involved. You should you should join us here in this industry. Well said, Sergey, and thought provoking as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching, everybody. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.